I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, I spoke with journalist and athlete Christine Yu about her new book, Up to Speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. She takes a deep dive into sports science as well as the cultural hurdles women face in high-level sports. feature this week focuses on women in sports. So for the other half of the population, here are some statistics on male health gleaned from a recent New York Times wellness column. A 2022 Cleveland Clinic study of 1,000 U.S. men found that 55% said they don't get regular health screenings. Men of color were even less likely to see a doctor regularly. 65% believe they could skip seeing a doctor because they're, quote, naturally healthier than most people. I have to point out that it is statistically impossible for the majority of men to be healthier than the majority of men. Why is this avoidance common? Some men shy away from seeing doctors because they fear receiving bad news. Others might fall into the trap of sticking one's head in the sand, i.e. denying the need for regular checkups. Some men shy away from seeing doctors because they fear bad news. And many young men aren't conditioned to make regular doctor visits the way that young women are encouraged to schedule annual OBGYN checks. Men who have more traditional beliefs about masculinity are less likely to use preventive care or seek medical treatment for injuries and infections because they tie this resistance to bravery and self-sufficiency. And this avoidance can be a problem. If you wait too long to be seen for a minor issue, it can become a major issue. Finding a physician you trust or feel comfortable with can be hard, but recommendations from friends or family can help. Telehealth visits or bringing a trusted companion to an office visit can also reduce stress. Finally, if you see this avoidance in someone else, instead of pointing the finger, use the car analogy. If they're good about doing regular maintenance on their car, they should be good about doing regular maintenance on their body. For example, instead of an oil change, prioritize a cholesterol check.
Women have been competing in athletics for centuries, but only in the past few decades have physiologists delved into how the uniquely female anatomy and physiology affect their performance. Christine Yu is an award-winning journalist who has turned her reporting on women athletes and the relationship between science and athletic performance into a comprehensive book on the subject. In Up to Speed, the Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, she covers topics ranging from a historical overview of women in sports to the role of hormones on performance, to the physics of designing jog bras, and much more. If you're an athlete, a woman, or simply interested in sports, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Christine. Welcome to the show, Christine. I'm talking to Christine Yu today, and her recent book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, is a really comprehensive overview of the story of women in sports, starting with a really thorough history of women and how they've been seen and how they struggled to get into sports. And we'll touch on that briefly, and then we'll jump into some of the the old and new science and pseudoscience about women's bodies and athletics. So Christine, what inspired you to put this massive um, amount of work into the book? Um, I often ask that question to myself (laughs) as I was writing this, Um, but I'm a sports and science and health journalist, and I often report on women's sports. And I've talked to a lot of, you know, athletes, both at the pro levels and then also amateur athletes. Um, And just in our conversations, um, as well as in my conversations with other, you know, sports science experts too, I came to realize just how little we knew about female physiology. And, you know, this was probably back in like 2017, 2018. And I found that really curious, right? Like that wasn't so long ago. And I couldn't quite understand why, right? Why we didn't know so much about, about women's bodies. And it kind of led me down this path to try to figure out why women tended to be understudied in the field of sports science research and exercise physiology and to, you know, really understand what barriers there were and what, more importantly for me, what those implications were for girls and women in sport if we weren't studying girls and women's actual experiences in their bodies within this realm. Great. Yeah, that's that's a really tricky thing to study too. Uh, you know, I, I my experience with studying female animals um, revealed that same kind of bias that, you know, in many studies... Um, only male animals are used because scientists don't want to deal with the complexities of the reproductive cycle and that how that might affect everything else. And as you get into in the book, that cycle does affect everything else. So let's just jump into the science, which is so interesting to me. I mean, um, just a, a little bit about my personal background and my interest is I was in high school when Title IX came along. And so, mm. you know, there was a big change and I was able to actually be on a track team and run and, you know, develop this lifelong interest in athletics, but there was no specific training for women. And it was kind of discouraging to see as I read your book that a lot of that hasn't really changed. Yeah, it really hasn't. Right. Um, And it is, it's, it's interesting because I think it's in part two things, right? I think it is in part this, issue around the ability to study women, like you mentioned, Um, because of our fluctuating hormones and the menstrual cycle, it's most of the scientists and experts that I spoke with when I asked them why, they all answered (laughs) it was because women were too complicated, right? Because of our hormones, like you know, right? It's harder to um, 
control for that noise in the data. And so it's just easier to study men because their bodies tend to be more steady state. But I think another piece of it too is, um, as I'm sure you also know too, right, from your experience, because women have fought so hard to gain access to sports and sports has historically been this realm for men and only men that we've often had to almost discount or push aside any part of us that made us women, right? That could make us be perceived as weaker or lesser. Um, And so we tried to be like the guys, right? Like we were just like boys, There's we could do the same thing as the boys could do. So it's this weird like dichotomy um, there because in order to access sports, we almost had to be like the boys, but we're not like the boys and we're not being studied, right? So we don't have that access to the same type of guiding, training guidelines or nutrition guidelines and the like. Right. And one of the the aspects of the book that I really liked was all the the personal um, anecdotes. And it sounds like you got in touch with so many people and talked to them about their stories. And that's really an overarching theme is, you know, these young women and then older women athletes continue to try to be one of the boys and you know, for reasons that we can get into, that just doesn't work. And one of the um, one of the issues that really resonated with me because I had that experience is what um, is called the the athletic triad. So maybe mm. you could talk about that and um, some of the the causes and then the repercussions that that can have on women. Sure. So the female athlete triad is this. Um, constellation of three interconnected conditions, right? So um, it usually includes some sort of menstrual dysfunction. So it could be absent periods or irregular periods, um, disordered eating or eating disorders, um, as well as low bone density. This is how kind of the, the condition was originally conceived of because doctors and researchers noticed that um, as w- more women started to get involved in sport, they noticed that some of them were experiencing these menstrual cycle dysfunctions. Um, But not only that, they also seem to be experiencing low bone density and potentially more stress fractures or bone stress injuries. And so they were really curious to understand why that was, what was this connection, right, between all of these issues. And what they realized was that it actually came down to um, energy, what they call energy availability. Um, And that's essentially, if you think of your, of your body as like a car, right. And, and you fill it up with gas, your energy availability is the gas that your body has to be able to do the things, you know, to survive on a daily basis, right. Breathing and walking around and all of that, but also the energy it needs to exercise and train. Um, So when your body doesn't have enough energy, it's essentially like you're you're running your body's running on fumes right you're you're running out of gas and that can set off a whole cascade of physiological um problems down the line and that can start to affect most um initially your menstrual cycle because the body once it's feels like it doesn't have enough energy, it thinks it's starving. It's smart, right? Like that's how our bodies want to survive. So if there's not enough energy, it thinks it's starving. And so it starts to shut down non-essential systems and the reproductive system is one of those. The reason that's important is because the hormones of the menstrual cycle not only coordinate fertility in the body, but have all these other um, 
roles or jobs, if you will, in the body too. And that includes things like bone building and maintaining bone mass, uh, building muscle and maintaining, you know, muscle mass card can impact cardiovascular health. Um, so once those hormones start to, you know, get dampened, if you will, right They're they're not surging as much or as high as they normally would, um, you see all these repercussions and that's why it can lead to things like bone stress injuries, um, and cardiovascular problems down the line. And so folks have really started to focus on this whole idea that, you know, just making sure that athletes, you know, both men and women, right. Are eating enough and making sure that they have enough fuel because that can just affect not only athletic performance, but long-term health. Yeah. That's such a tricky thing because in so many sports, there's this emphasis on being as light as possible, but then there's this fine balance, like you say, that you need that nutrition. And from an evolutionary perspective, it makes so much sense what you're saying, that women have different physiological needs. I mean, natural selection designed us with reproduction in mind, and men weren't designed. I mean, their reproductive needs are really different than yeah. ours. And it, it sure seems like scientists are just starting to scratch the surface of the effects of hormones throughout the body, throughout life. Um, what And what about effects of hormones, you know, especially as they cycle in premenopausal women on performance? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, the hormones have so, you know, their, their job isn't just around fertility and that it does have all these effects. So it can influence everything from, you know, how you metabolize certain foods. So, you know, how you metabolize carbohydrates and fats. Um, like I said, it can affect muscle mass and strength, but also just mental health too. And kind of in these other performance factors, it can influence how you tend to adapt to training and how you recover from training. Um, a lot of the research is pretty preliminary at this point in terms of understanding the exact effects of the cycle and different phases of the cycle on these factors. But overall, um, I think the big picture takeaway is that, you know, the menstrual cycle is critically important, you know, to not only health, but to potentially your performance. And that's why it's so important that women know that they need to have or should have, right, a, a regular menstrual cycle, that if there is any, you know, some irregularity, or if it goes missing for a little bit, that could potentially be a red flag. And, you know, that that has to be something that you pay attention to. Yeah, and it's wildly common. Um, I mean, like I was saying, I experienced that in my 20s long ago now. But from reading your book, people are still going through that. It's even though it's widespread knowledge, you know, there, it's still happening, which was a little discouraging to me. To yeah, read that. I think that it's in part because there's that the myth still persists that losing your menstrual cycle is a good thing, right? It's right. it's a sign that you are fit, that you're training a lot, and I think it goes back, you know, again to these these old ideas that women's bodies weren't um, made to do sports or to perform, do physical, vigorous physical activity. And that, um, a sign of losing your menstrual cycle was in a way, right? Like a sign that your body was, was becoming like the boys, right? right. And, you know, becoming, you know, more appropriate, if you will, for that athletic arena, but right. that, right. yeah. 
And I think that it's, it's really unfortunate that the long-term effects of that loss of the cycle are not widely publicized because many people that I know, myself included, are now dealing with those long-term effects, bone, decreased bone density. And so I really want the message to get out that you know, maybe it's convenient and you even might have the, the mistaken notion that it, it improves your performance, which it probably does not. But then, you know, you're going to pay the piper at some point down the road. Yeah. And that, I mean, honestly, that really was one of the reasons why I also wanted to write the book, because I think I, you know, that was also a myth that I heard a lot growing up, but it really wasn't until probably my mid to late thirties when I was at some, you know, conference and I heard, you know, a doctor talk about the female athlete triad. And it was the first time I actually heard that term. And I heard kind of the interconnectedness of all of these different issues. And it was mind boggling to me, right? Like I was like, wait, why didn't I know that it, it was like, it was so important for me to build bone health, like my bone mass when I was in my adolescence and that, you know, osteoporosis wasn't something that I just needed to think about as I got older, but it was actually something I needed to think about now as a young person, because that sets the stage, right? Like you do, you build 80 to 90% of your bone mass by the end of adolescence. And what, what you build, then it's what you have, and then you can't build anymore. Um, so that was like a, a big aha moment for me. And, you know, part of, like I said, part of the reason why I wanted to write this book is I want younger people to know about this before they get to be like in, in their thirties or forties. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and another aspect of the female body that you cover, and I love this chapter on breasts, you know, these mm. reproductive structures that we all have. And the statistics were staggering to me how many women report that they have breast pain or that, you know, having larger breasts inhibited them from taking part in some sports. And, and you do a really, a very cool um, historical overview of the development of jog bras and supportive bras. So tell us a little bit about that, just because it was such a cool story. Yeah, it, the sports bra wasn't developed until 1977, you know, it's the height of the jogging boom. But even then, there was no good way to support breasts during physical activity. So, you know, at the time, women would wear like two bras on top of each other or wear a bra that was smaller in size. Um, you know, some would try to run without a bra too, which probably wasn't very comfortable. Um, and then there were three women in Vermont who essentially cut apart and then sewed back together two jock straps and made the first jog bra. Um, and it's wild to me that it took that long, but not only that, but that it's really taken so long for us to take sports bras seriously, because I think we, again, discount it as just a piece of spandex that needs to just you know, strap your boobs closer to your body, right? Um, we don't think about it because again, we associate breasts with like sex and reproduction. We don't think about it in an athletic context. Right, um, right. Yeah. And, you know, part of, part of the reason sports bras have been, you know, ostensibly terrible, right? Up until I, I probably pretty recently is because we actually haven't studied breast biomechanics and how breasts move because a lot of the scientists who you know on on the whole tended to be men um, as well as the bra designers who also tended to be men didn't think that it was worthy of studying 
But if you don't study breast motion, you can't actually design a garment that can accurately or effectively account for that motion um, and potentially make it more comfortable or more supportive. So um, a lot of the researchers didn't really get, actually get the technology they needed to study this until like the late 2000s, 2010s. And that's when breast biomechanics has really started to ramp up and more papers have been published. Um, and then you start to see that now as brands recognize that this is important and they're starting to work with these researchers um, as part of the research and design process to prototype their bras, to test their bras. And so hopefully we'll start to see better bras coming up down the line. Yeah. Yeah. I can only hope. And <laughs> for the listeners that have never heard the terms breast and biomechanics in the same sentence, you got to read this book because it's, <laughs> the studies are pretty amazing. And another thing that, that I really liked is that you included a lot of stories of women that had children and then went on to just, you know, turn out amazing physical performances. And I think that's something that a lot of women have doubts about. I mean, myself included, you know, when my daughter was born, it was just, it was a big open question. You know, can I get back to the same level of physical performance before she was born? And you definitely um, answer that question. And maybe give one or two of those examples because they're pretty heartwarming. Yeah, so it's it's wild, right? Because I think historically it's often been, especially for the professional women, it's often been thought that once you start a family, that's essentially the end of your career, right? You're re you're retiring and that's your off-ramp. Um, but it's been incredible, especially in the last several years to see this frankly, baby boom uh, amongst professional uh, amongst professional athletes who have been able to have babies and come back from sport to sport and do incredibly well. Um, you have um, Alephine Tuliamuk, who is a marathon runner. She qualified, I mean, she, her, her story is really interesting in that she qualified, she won the marathon trial, Olympic marathon trials for the, what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics, but then COVID happened. And she and her, her partner or and husband now wanted to start a family after the 2020 Olympics. And they had to make a decision whether they're going to wait, which is a long time, or whether they're going to try to have a baby in this window, knowing that the Olympics was going to be postponed. So they ended up, you know, having a baby and she came back and, you know, competed in the 2020, 2021 Olympics. Um, and it's just phenomenal, right. That they were able to do that. Um, there's also Stephanie Bruce, who is also, you know, a distance and marathon runner. Um, she had her, she was signing with a new sponsor when she was having her first baby. And then shortly thereafter had her second baby kind of unexpectedly, but her sponsor has been so supportive of her to you know, take her time in getting back to training and getting back to form. And, you know, after her second baby, she went on a tear and set a ton of, you know, personal bests, won a number of national records or national titles. Um, so it's been really heartening to see that you can come back from having a baby. Um, it's not this like death sentence to your, to your athletic performance. And I think that's a great thing about all these topics that you cover in your book that we're different as women athletes, but we're, we're, we're good. And, you know, as, as our bodies change through life, you know, we can keep performing and performing well, but it really helps to have the science, the information that underpins those differences. And I wish I could have read this book like 
50 years ago, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to buy it and give it to my younger friends so that they can get the benefit of all this work that you've done. So we're, we're running out of time. We're going to have to leave it yeah. there, but thanks so much for talking, Christine. I'll link to your book um, in the show notes for the podcast. And um, thanks for writing this. Thank you for having me. This is super fun. That was Christine Yu speaking with me about her new book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. She focused on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. In her reporting on elite athletes and talking with experts in the field of sports science, she noticed that even as women have excelled in sports, there's an underlying sense that women and their bodies are an anomaly in the athletic world. We touched on various aspects of this issue in our conversation, and her book dives deeply into the topic. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer this quarter, and I produce this week's show. Headline thanks to Susan Moran. The show was engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Ludwig van Beethoven. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material referenced in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. KGNU is fueled by creative and dedicated people, keeping our airwaves alive and thriving. If you're interested in science, you could be part of the How on Earth team. The first step is to attend a volunteer orientation held the first Thursday of odd-numbered months. To find out more about volunteer opportunities, visit kgnu.org.